0: We'll open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3, and Lord willing, we are finishing Ephesians chapter 3 this morning, which I'm slightly excited about. It's been a long time coming to get through these first three chapters, and I have been so unspeakably blessed by what we've been learning from our friend, the Apostle Paul. As you know, the last part of Ephesians is a prayer. It's the second prayer that he offers in this uh, little epistle. And as he prays, it's very instructive to us at a lot of levels. It tells us, it gives us an example rather of how to pray. It also gives us how we should be the answers to prayer requests. So very encouraged at every level of this. In order to kind of remember where we are, we are looking in a little series of um, exploring what it means to implore the God who hears. And this morning, we'll be looking specifically at praying with confidence in God's ability. Praying with confidence in God's ability. Let me read this text for us so it's fresh in our minds. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him Be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. My first flight on an airplane is something I'll never, ever forget. I was going to school out in Los Angeles and was going to fly home for Christmas to spend the Christmas holiday with my family back in Chattanooga, Tennessee. It was a cross-country flight from L.A. to Atlanta, then a connection Up to Chattanooga. And I was both excited and just slightly nervous, a little bit scared about it. Weeks of anticipation, and the day finally came for this flight. Got to the airport early, made my way to the gate, waited for my departure. Eventually, my row was called. Never forget that feeling. It's time to fly made my way to my seat, which I had carefully picked out by the window. And my face was pressed up against the window to see everything that was happening, both out of curiosity and just to make sure that they were doing the right things. Of course, I didn't know what the right things were. We began to taxi out to the runway. We sat at the end of the airstrip, and then it was go time. The plane took off, and I remember feeling my back pressed against the back of the seat with the power of those jet engines. We gained speed, then the plane began to tilt upward. My head tilted backwards, and I looked down, and the ground was going away from me. Got out my Instamatic camera, and I probably took 100 pictures on that flight. Got into the clouds, I took a picture of white. It was the clouds. <laughs> that was 40 plus years ago, and flying was different then. If you're a little younger, it was a different experience then than it is now. They actually gave you a meal on these flights, and it was a pretty good meal, actually, as I remember. Now, a little background. I was, I was a poor college student, and I probably had a dollar or two in my pocket. I was going home, excited to see my family. And something happened that I would never experienced before. The flight attendants began serving a hot lunch that smelled amazing. And I kept listening to this gal go to every each row and saying, Do you want the beef or do you want the chicken dish? Do you want the beef or do you want the chicken dish? And all I could think of was which I wanted: the beef or the chicken dish. And then she got to me and asked me if I wanted the beef or the chicken dish. I said, no, thank you, I'll pass. And the reason was I didn't have very much money. The guy next to me got a meal, it was beef, I remember. Watched him eat it out of the corner of my eye, my stomach growling, my mouth watering and salivating and eventually I made it to Chattanooga. Got picked up by my dad asked me how the flight was he knew it was my first flight I talked his ear off for the better part of that trip going home about dad It was fast and up and clouds and cornfields that were postage it was amazing then he said well how was the meal Ricky I said I don't know it smelled great but dad I didn't have enough money to buy one and I was too embarrassed to ask how much it was my dad had a way of saying the, the word what in a way that was unique. Maybe your dad had it as well. And it came off something like this What? You didn't eat? And I said, No, I didn't, I didn't have enough money. Son, there's no charge for that meal because you've already paid for it, it's free. You see, I had this amazing resource, a desired delicacy, and was unaware that it was already mine and rejected it because I didn't think it was. I didn't know it was. By the way, on the return trip, I ate like a king. (laughs) Too many of us God just like I did that airline meal. He has things He desires for us to enjoy, but we don't understand that they are already paid for. They are there simply for the asking, but we don't know to ask. This is true of our problems and our trials especially. It's too easy for us to look at our problems in light of our ability to handle them, to solve them. This lands us in despair and anxiety. It's too easy to face difficult situations according to our own ability to solve them, our own resources that we have at our disposal, instead of looking to God, His resources, and His ability to solve them. The problem is this. We all naturally approach the problems and needs and difficulties in our lives from the perspective of the limitations of ourselves, of man, instead of the unlimited ability of God. Now, that brings us to the subject in our text this morning. Paul began praying, as you know, back in chapter 3, verse 14, and now he's concluding his prayer in verses 20 and 21. You know he's concluding his prayer because how does verse 21 end? Amen, right? And so he obviously is saying amen to his prayer. This is a benediction. This is a doxology. This is a way that he closes it up. And it is so insightful. It tells us how we should think about prayer, how we should pray, the content of our prayers. And to be blunt and frank with you, it it, it is astounding Simply, unbelievably astounding what he prays and how he prays. Peter O'Brien says this, speaking of this prayer, no prayer that has ever been framed has uttered a bolder request. Wow. Then he says this, has the apostle then gone over the top? No, for it is impossible to ask too much Since the Father's giving exceeds the Ephesians' capacity for asking or even imagining. End quote. As Paul frames up the final part of this prayer, he looks to glorify God. It's it's an amazing way to finish his prayer, it's an amazing way to even begin a prayer, which he did back in chapter one by glorifying God. And this is so instructive for us. I want us to break it down and learn together by discovering two ways to prayerfully glorify God. This is not just to pray, it's to glorify God. And it's not just to glorify God, it's to glorify God in prayer and by praying. Two ways to prayerfully glorify God. I think if Paul were here, he would say, you can learn how to glorify God prayerfully by thinking of prayer this way. This first way is in verse 20, and that is this. Recognize the benevolent omnipotence of God. That's a mouthful. Recognize the benevolent, that means the good-naturedness. Omnipotence, that's of the power of God that belongs to our great God. Recognize the benevolent omnipotence of God, verse 20. Now to him who is able, stop right there for a minute. Now to him, I want you to notice something that's interesting about this prayer because it mirrors what Paul typically does. And I understand this a little bit as a preacher, but Paul did it as a preacher and a theologian and as a writer of Scripture. And that is his mind gets so full of God and God things that he starts to say something and he distracts himself. For example, look at chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, and then he's distracted for 13 verses. And he comes back in verse 14 and says it again. Actually, for this reason, he picks up where he left off. The same thing happens between these two verses. Look at verse 20. Now to him, then he has a little aside, a little footnote. Verse 21. Now to him be the glory. The sentence is actually here. To him be the glory. What's interesting, though, is there's no verb here. It's very common in Greek when it's a stative verb, a a verb of to be. Stative verbs are, you know, he is um, versus, you know, he runs. That's an active verb. This is a stative verb. So literally it's to him the glory. But Paul says to him, distraction, to him the glory. Now these distractions are wonderful theological nuggets. Incredible. This might be one of the most incredible ones in all of the Bible, and I I mean that along with Dr. O'Brien. Now, to him, now he's going to say, to him be glory. But before he can get to glory, he realizes what's unique about God that makes him receive our glorification of him, our, our glorying in him, our glorying about him. To him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. To get a running start into Paul's theology here, you have to go back to chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every, not some, not selected, not a few, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The sufficiency of these blessings, every spiritual blessing, he says of God and Christ have already been paid, they've already been granted to us, just like that meal that I had already paid for and was available, but I didn't know I could take it. He, through the death of his son, has paid for every, every, not some, every spiritual blessing. Have you, have you asked for them? Have you Taken them. He says, now to him be glory, the glory. He wants the Ephesians to see that he's praying for them with a theological perspective on God's mighty saving purposes. His theology informed his praying. His theology informed his prayers. I think it's very very instructive that if there's a problem in your life with praying, it may be because your theology is not on the tip of your tongue to inform it or worse, it's wrong and bad theology that might prevent it or inform it wrongly. Good theology feeds prayer and good prayer is fed by the knowledge Of what God is like and what He's done. He says to Him, and remember, we gotta go get the the verb and the aim in verse 21 and bring it back with us. To Him be glory. And this tells us why, because He's able. What does it mean to give God glory? Uh, We have to be careful. Giving God glory is not adding something to Him. When we give each other gifts, when we give each other something, we're adding something to them, we're giving them something. And typically when we give them something, we lose something. This is a completely different thing. To give God glory doesn't mean to give him something he does not already have. Instead, it's an active acknowledgement of praising him for what he's already done and who he already is. It's just active acknowledgement. That's what giving God glory is. It's acknowledging who he is. It's acknowledging what he's done I love Psalm 29, verse 2, ascribe to the Lord glory, do his name. Ascribe to the Lord the glory, do his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. Psalm 96, 8, similarly says, ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Ascribe to the Lord the glory of his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Well, his name already has glory. We're ascribing to him what's already there. It means we're recognizing it. We're affirming it. We're appreciating it. So Paul begins here, this doxology, this benediction, with ascribing to God the glory he deserves. A little practical footnote. Do you you ever begin your prayers with an ascription of the things that are magnificent and glorifying in God? Do Do you ever begin by rehearsing In your mind and before your Lord, the reasons that you're approaching Him in the first place. Paul does that here. He says, To Him, He's gonna say, Be glory, but to Him, and He gets to Him and He stops. (laughs) To Him, full stop. God, full stop. He can't go any further without talking about what's great about God. You know why? Because what was great about God was on His mind. It meant something to him, to him. And then he instantly says, who is able? Oh, what theology is there? Who is able? Now, theologians, many have rightly said, this is a pyramid that starts at the top and kind of adds as it goes on. Just, Just listen to this pyramid structure if you can. He is able. He is able to do. He is able to do exceeding abundantly. He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond. He is able to do exceedingly beyond it beyond. Eh, that is hard to say. Exceeding abundantly beyond all we ask. Add to that, we can imagine or think. The actually, the English translation. You know, sometimes we, we beat up the translation and say, "Oh, it doesn't get the full." Uh, force of the Greek, it, it actually does a really good job here. I mean listen to this to him, who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all Th- that's a lot. Look carefully at this with a the theological eye. He is able to do, he's able to work. God is not limited. He's not restrained. He is able. No one tells God no about anything. Nor is he restrained by power to do anything. How do I know that? He he raised his son from the dead. Is there anything bigger than that? He created the universe by saying, exist. That's ability. He's not inactive, he's active. He's not dead, he's alive. He can do, he can work. He's able to do what we ask. God hears and God answers prayers. Do you believe that? Will you believe that? Do, do, Do you believe that God is at this moment in heaven with his ear bent toward your heart Waiting to hear and waiting to be asked. He's able to do what we ask. He's able to do what we ask or think. This is humbling and terrifying. <laughs> just to freak you out just a little bit, God can read your mind, He knows everything you're thinking. Everything you've thought, everything you will think, that's Psalm 139 affirms that, right? Even before a word's on my lips, Lord, you know it. He can read your mind, nothing, nothing in your thinking escapes his notice, which sounds like a threat. In this context, nothing you ever desire or want or imagine that you didn't even ask him about is beyond his notice. He knows what you need. He knows what you want and is ready to meet what you need and want. He reads our thoughts and minds. reads our imaginations. Reminds me of Romans 8, verse 26 and 7. In the same way, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. You could do a whole sermon series for months on that phrase. We do not know how to pray as we should. That's Paul saying that, and he's including we himself. We do not know how to pray as we should, but... but. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with with groanings too deep for words. I think that's our words. It goes beyond our own understanding. He prays what we would not even know how to pray because God knows what we think and what we imagine. He searches the hearts and knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Wow. So He... Knows what we, he hears what we ask, he knows what we imagine, but, but look at those adjectives there for a minute. He is able, he has the ability, and he's willing to do far more abundantly is one Greek word. And that's just, that's about the best you can do, far more overwhelmingly. And then that's enough of a word. And then he says, beyond all. <laughs> that's pretty comprehensive that we ask or think. Far more, more abundantly, he gives grace by his calculations, not ours. William Hendrickson says this. He notes that there's steps in the progression of Paul's thought here. He says, God is able to do all we ask him to do He is able to do all that we dare not ask but merely imagine. He can do more than this and He can do far more, very far more than this. Neither the narrowness of our knowledge nor the feebleness of our prayer will limit the richness of His gifts, end quote. Can I just read that last sentence again? Neither the narrowness of our knowledge nor the feebleness of our prayer will limit the richness of his gifts. That flight attendant had no idea why I said no to the meal. She, she didn't. But if we wanted to bring the analogy over to that, she would have known that I didn't understand the situation properly. And she would have given it to me and said, you, you, this is for you, you, you can eat this. This is, this is prepared for you and it's already paid for. Because that's how God treats us. Paul acknowledges God's sufficiency. I mean, the, the, the attributes of God here are just screaming all over the place. God's sufficiency is here, God's care, God's omnipotence, his power, he's able, his omniscience, he knows, he reads our minds, his providence, he does what's best for us. God answers prayer. Because he can, that's omnipotence. And secondly, because he will. That's his kindness and goodness. Notice his omnipotence in the last half of verse 20. He does this according to the power that works within us. Now that should remind you of the power that works within us that we've already studied. Back up in chapter 3, verse 16, he prays that God would grant us according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man so that, here's the prayer request, Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. Be able to comprehend his love for us, live in the reality of that, respond because it's true. Here's some good news. God knows Every part of your life. You cannot even think or imagine anything that's not under his purview. He knows and he still cares. And he's ever ready to serve and support us and has the power to overcome anything that will be problematic or challenges. What a God! What a God! The fact that God can do far more than we ask or think is no encouragement unless we believe that he will do it. And he will. It Reminds me of Romans 8, 31, one of the most precious passages in my own heart. He, Paul says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Then this phrase, he who did not spare his own son. Think about that. He didn't spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him, Jesus, freely give us all things? Don Carson so helpfully says this quote, The more we reflect on the kind of God who is there, the kind of God who has disclosed himself in Scripture supremely in Christ Jesus, the kind of God who has revealed his plans and purposes for his own household, that's what we're called in chapter 3, the kind of God who hears, the kind of God who answers prayer, the more we think about that kind of God, he says, the more we shall be encouraged to pray. Prayerlessness is often an index to our ignorance of God. Prayerlessness is often an index to our ignorance of God. If we don't pray, it's because we're ignorant of God, he says. Real and vital knowledge of God not only teaches us what to pray, but gives us a powerful incentive to pray, end quote. Many years ago, I uh, had a friend in another state who was very uh, well-to-do, very wealthy, and m- most people knew that. It was clear who he was and what he did. And I remember having a talk with him one time, and uh, he said, you know, my wealth has taught me something about, about God that's so different from me. He says, I know a lot of people try to get close to me because they, they wonder what they can get out of me. He says, that, that bothers me. And he said, so different is God, because God is so wealthy, And he wants us to know that so that the closer we get to him, the more we want from him. And he graciously gives it. Great insight. Think of this reality. Matthew 7, verse 7. Listen to this. Astonishing thought. Jesus said, Ask prayer, and it will be given you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and he who knocks it will be open. That's Jesus talking about prayer himself to the Father. Then he says this interesting illustration: What man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? You have a hungry little guy. He's coming in, maybe a four or five year old, and he's coming in. He's starving. Mom, Dad, I, I I really need something to eat. Okay, here's a rock. Is that not cruel? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? Then this, if you then, being evil, thank you, Lord, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Wow. What an analogy. If we as evil, sinful, wicked men and women give good gifts to those we love, how much more will the good Father in heaven give to those he loves? Amazing. If God tells us he's a giver of good gifts to his children, then to doubt him is to see him other than he truly is. It's a form of atheism, not believing what God's really like. Carson again says this: We simply cannot ask for good things beyond God's power to give them. <laughs> it almost makes you chuckle. We cannot ask for good things beyond God's power to give them. We cannot even imagine good things beyond God's power to give them. He's able just. Listen for a moment. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult to you. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen says. Romans four verse nineteen. Without becoming weak in faith, speaking of Abraham who offered Isaac, he contemplated his own body as uh, now as good as dead, since he was about hundred years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. They're approaching the century mark. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able to perform. Romans 16, 25. Now to him who is able to to establish you according to my gospel in the preaching of Jesus Christ. Ah, one of my favorite passages, Jude 24 and 25. Jude says, now to him who is able, able what? To keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great, great joy, be the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord. Glory and majesty dominion authority before all time now and forever and ever amen almost a mirror of Paul's words Hebrews 11:19 talking about Abraham again he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead from which he also received him back as a type God is able how able is God The writer of the Hebrews tells us that when Abraham went up on Mount Moriah, he had every expectation that he was going to kill Isaac and that God would raise him from the dead. He is able. And then maybe one of my favorite passages on this subject, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. Listen to this language. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Who talks like that? Only someone who knows the resources of God can talk like that. We should glorify God for His limitless ability you know, I was looking at this passage and thinking, this, a way to think about that is God has omnipotent benevolence, all-powerful goodness, but He also has benevolent omnipotence, all-good power. They both modify each other. You cannot seek God for something that He has no ability or limited ability to answer for your good and for His glory. But Paul doesn't end there. He says the first way to prayerfully glorify God is to recognize the benevolent omnipotence of God, the kind power, his all power, his ability. Secondly, magnify the far-reaching magnificence of God. Now remember, we saw in verse 20, to him, then he had the aside, who is able. Now he comes back up to him. He picks that up again. To him... Be glory, the glory, be the glory. Glory is an interesting concept. We've looked at it many times in our studies. Glory has an Old Testament and a New Testament kind of nuance. The Old Testament glory is the word kavod. It means heaviness. It's uh, uh, ultimate reality. It's, it's picking something up and it's heavier than you thought it would be. The New Testament is the word doxa, which means Unapproachable light. It was often used in a secular way of the sun. If you look at the sun, you see the glory of the sun. We see John in Revelation chapter 1, he sees the risen Christ and he says he was brighter than the sun. You understand then why he fell down as a dead man. To him be glory. Now, remember, we don't give God glory, we ascribe to him glory, we're agreeing with his glorified attributes but we want him to receive glory from our acknowledgement of who he is and what he's done. To him be the glory. Framing our prayers with specific praise to God, about God, is a clear pattern in Scripture, and that's what Paul does here. One of, my, my, uh, uh, most intriguing, one of the most intriguing passages to me is to see David at the end of his life, how he prays. Just listen. Listen to how David's theology informed what he would say to God. 1 Chronicles 29.10. So David blessed the Lord, prayed, in the sight of all the assembly, and David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Wow. But it keeps going. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all, and in your hand is the power to is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great. And to strengthen everyone. I, do, do you hear that? Does this sound like your prayers? Do, do your prayers ever beg the language that you have to say if you have enough to speak of the greatness of God? You know, sometimes I think we, we barge in like, into a room like our kids are playing Legos. Hey, what's going on? Into the prayer, into the throne room. And we don't come with a pause that we are speaking to the majestic creator God. Paul's so practical because he doesn't just say, To God be glory. He tells us when, where, how. He says, First of all, to God, to him be the glory. Look at that, in the church. In the church. Wow, is this instructive for our ecclesiology. The core reason for the church's existence is to bring glory to God through His Son. To bring glory to God through His Son. That's why we have relationships. That's why we meet. That's why we sing. That's why we have care groups. That all. That's why we have youth ministry and children's ministry is to bring glory to God. His glory should reside in the church. We together are a container, as it were, a reservoir, as it were, for the glory of God in ways that God manifests himself differently than even individually. His glory should be uniquely manifested in the church. How? How? Because of good singing and theological trajectory in singing, because of fellowship that has more to do than talk about the non-existent baseball season. It means we talk about things of substance. We encourage each other. We correct each other. We, we help each other. This is convicting to me to make sure that my relationships in the church are uniquely, uniquely flavored by God's glory. Just last week, I met with a couple of friends who I share many common interests with, and uh, we do a lot of things together. And I just had to confess to these guys that, man, we, we share a lot of commonalities, but I, the thing we share most deeply and most is our love for Christ, and I feel like I have failed to make that the accent that it needs to be. And we made a plan to purposely have better discussions about our Lord. Can we all make a renewed effort to frame our relationships with each other around Christ Himself in the church? He says, In Christ Jesus. The glory of God is best seen in Jesus Christ. I think that's what he's saying. To him be the glory in Christ Jesus. In other words, to see God's glory is to pursue knowing Jesus Christ, his son. He just said that he would pray in verse 17 that he would dwell in our hearts through faith. Why? Because Colossians 2, 9, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. All that we need to know about God is in the precious Lord Jesus which is why we keep reaching ahead to chapter four, verse 20. In contrast to your old life, you did not learn Christ in this way if indeed you have heard him and been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, he says, and we'll be there in just a few weeks. Christ is our focus because that's where God's glory uniquely dwells and is manifest. And then he says, to all generations. Now, there's a couple ways to look at this. To all generations can mean past, present, and future. Everyone's lived in history. Everyone will live in the future, and everyone's alive now. And that's true. But I think it's a comprehensive phrase that just means everyone, as we'll see in the next phrase, all the time. A believer's purpose and desire is to see God glorified in and to everyone. That should make sense. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that that you may proclaim the excellencies, that's the attributes, the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. Our purpose in being saved and being the church is to proclaim what's excellent about God. How can you ever proclaim what's excellent about God without getting to the person of Christ? It's impossible. To all generations, past, present, future, everyone in our worldview, in in the view of our world. All generations does have the idea of history, which is what I think he goes next to for all time forever and ever forever and ever Romans 11:36 for from him and through him and to him god are all things to him be the glory forever amen we we as believers have this this wonderful hope that glorifying God in this life will bring treasured assurance and treasured perspective, comfort, solving of our anxieties. But we also know forever and ever means that there will be one day that's better than this. When faith becomes, we sang it, sight, So do you have a desire to magnify the far-reaching magnificence of God to everyone at all times for all history? (laughs) And then Paul closes by saying, Amen. Amen. You know what amen means? Let me read you right out of my lexicon, right out of the Greek dictionary. So be it. May it come to pass. It is true. It's a final affirmation of confidence. Do you? (laughs) <laughs> do you pray like this? You can. You can. But as we've sang for the last four weeks, prayer is a learned behavior. You and I can learn to do this. The more we know about God in the scriptures, the more we know about who he is, that he's able, what he's done, that should feed how we talk to him, what we ask him for, and what we can expect from him, which is beyond expectation. This is not new in the New Testament. We all know, or you likely know, the story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, otherwise known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were called by Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 3 to come and give worship to a giant image of gold that Nebuchadnezzar had made of himself, And they wouldn't. Then they were set up by their enemies where Nebuchadnezzar would test them to see if they would do this, and they didn't. And so Nebuchadnezzar confronts them. When he confronts them, he gives them an opportunity to bow the knee to this image. And they said no. Story you know very well. So they're thrown where? Into a fiery furnace, into a kiln to be burned alive. What I think is important though in that story is what they say, which I think is very, very instructive to us about God's ability. Listen very carefully. Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. We don't need to go think about whether we're going to follow your admonition to bow. We're we're not. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. Exactly what Paul said. They recognized and they told Nebuchadnezzar, he is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king, But this is what's important. But, they said, even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king. Stop right there. We believe that God is able to deliver us from the fire. But if he throws us in there and we're burnt alive and we're burnt to a crisp, unrecognizable, let it be known to you. We are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you set up. You know the story. He throws them in, begrudgingly. They look, and not only are they not burning, there's another one in there who it says is as a son of God. I think likely the second person of the Trinity jumped in the fire with them, and they were preserved. Before they knew they would be preserved, though, listen, this is important. This affects our prayers because they said, God is able to deliver us, but if he chooses not to, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. In other words, they knew that they would land in heaven. So praying for God's ability to be manifested to us is not a blank check, carte blanche, you get anything you want. We're praying according to the will of God for His glory, for our good, and we trust His answers because His answer will be more than we ask or think and better than we can imagine, even if it's not exactly what we prayed. Because He is good, he does good. How do you pray? How do you pray? How do you pray? A woman once approached a famous, famous British preacher G. Campbell Morgan, after he preached, and asked this: Do you think we should pray for even the little things in our lives or just for the big things? His dignified British manner and wit, he replied, Madam. Can you think of anything in your life that is big to God? (laughs) Our prayers should be infused with confidence and purpose, and we can pray because of our assurance with theological provision, precision, and insight to glorify God. Amen. Let it be so. Father, you are able to do more than we would ever ask, we would ever think. And you're good. And you give good gifts. Please forgive us for our prayers being so small, so limited. We just heard there is no big prayer to you, but you are able to do everything and more than we would ask or think. Increase our prayers in content, in depth, because we know you better. And the truth that we know about you motivates us to talk to you to seek you, to request things of you. You are so amazing and so kind to hear our prayers, to know our imaginations and to to graciously grant. May we be those who echo in heaven's court with abundant and ceaseless prayer and praise. Amen.